Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Ubuntu Podcast. Hey, y'all. Good afternoon. Uh, good morning, wherever you may be. Uh, welcome to the month of April. Uh, hopefully this month is, you know, bright and shiny. Yes. Uh, blessings upon blessings your way. And uh, hopefully uh, uh, this uh, coronavirus uh, spread can slow down soon. So Dow. we can get to our normal lives. Dow, where, where are we at? <laughs> mean, where are we at? Where are we at? What are we, what are we doing right now? Intro. No, I mean... You didn't say welcome to the Ubuntu podcast. Welcome to the Ubuntu podcast. Uh, we are excited to have you, our new listeners, uh, our new re- listeners and our regular listeners. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're excited for this episode. This is our fifth episode. Uh, we will be talking about the divide. Uh, things that are, you know, boiling under the carpet that we don't talk about in our community. Uh, but we will bring them to surface today. Uh, my co-hosters are David Custer. Hey, Dave, what you call me? What you David, call me? David Curtis. He said David Custard. Custard. He was hungry. <laughs> I am not a dessert. <laughs> I'm hungry. I know I'm a snack and all, but come on hey, now. <laughs> hey, guys, uh, it's David. It's your boy. <laughs> David Custard. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. How's it going, guys? This is Hanuk. Super excited to be here. And thank you, Doug, for the intro. Yeah, it's the fifth episode. You know, people got to see how we rock, how we really rock. Exactly. What do you put in your rice? We bringing some jollof rice up in here. You know, Senegalese Independence Day. Yes. Happy happy birthday, Senegal. By the time this is... um. Release it will not be your birthday, but the day that this is recorded, it belated. is. Happy belated birthday to Senegal. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Senegal, we love you. We do. I could be Senegalese. Stay tuned. You, you definitely probably is Senegalese, my brother. I'm just saying. Oh, my God. That would change everything. <sighs> that means we got to take a trip Ubuntu in Senegal. Ooh. I'm trying. The stupid Ooh, Corona. <laughs> stupid Corona, bro. Yeah. Uh, Corona will die down soon. And now off to David uh, for Africa in the news. Take it away, brother. Ooh, okay. Thank you so much, Dow and Hinnock, for a very fun introduction. Um, just want to uh, uh, say hi to our viewers. To not our viewers, no one's looking at us. Say hi to our listeners. Um, remind them um, from the Ubuntu podcast. We send our love, thoughts, prayers as we um, face this global pandemic, which is COVID nineteen, together. And so that's actually going to be the topic of my um, Africa in the news segment for today. Shocker, right? Um, but we want to go a little bit more in depth. Hanak gave us a really great Africa in the News segment, our last episode. And we're going to get a little more specific around what's happening because it's changing so quickly. So a general COVID-19 and Africa update. As of now, um, 
As of this taping, 49 countries in Africa have recorded COVID-19 cases. More than 6,000 people have been infected. Close to 450 of those folks have recovered, but there have been more than 200 deaths, unfortunately, including even some former heads of state in Congo and Somalia. Um, and so as Africa is the second most populated continent in the world and faces many sustained challenges to public systems and infrastructures, a few weeks ago, um, many folks were puzzled about the relatively low spread of the virus on the continent which at the time was close to non-existent. And now, although relatively many different countries in Africa are reporting much lower deaths and infection count than the rest of the world, the upward spike in cases and transmission across the continent is beginning to confirm what many fear are the worst. That the continent of Africa, which has been systematically exploited, abused, and plundered, and has resulted in critical gaps and important life-changing systems, such as healthcare, education, and the social safety net. Before this is all over, because of those gaps, COVID-19 could take the lives of millions, um, even quoted by the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres himself. And I will say this, <laughs> many African nations are simply not having that reality. They're not going to go down without a fight. Um, many leading swiftly and with drastic measures Countless countries have issued sweeping containment measures to eliminate and slow the spread of COVID-19. Countries like South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Eritrea, Sierra Leone, Botswana, and many more have gone on, whether it be partial or complete national lockdowns, limiting commerce, mobility, and all forms of public interaction. And many of these even began doing this before cases were recorded in their respective countries. But I think one important thing to highlight that this type of response and an even more aggressive way compared to the rest of the world dramatically interferes with daily lives of millions of Africans who rely a lot on the informal economy to survive. And so thinking about that general update, I would like to take a closer look for this new segment. Uh, I have one specific African country, a country for many reasons that is near and dear to my heart, which is Uganda um, in the face of COVID-19. So located in East Africa, Uganda has been one of the leaders and has um, enacted some of the most strict standards in the face of COVID-19 with the current uh, count of uh, 48 viral cases as of now, as of this recording, um, on March 19th, before and even for one case was even recorded, the president and the government ordered that all institutions, including schools and non-essential businesses, would be closed. Um, and then a couple of days later, um, when the first case was recorded, uh, the countries quickly banned all vehicle transport, um, first public, then private, um, banned all flights and travel in and out of the country, imposed a national curfew and instituted what is essentially a complete lockdown of everything that is not a food center or um, a medical a medical place, a medical provider. And so, right, it's extremely intense and understandably so. Um, but I will say even in that, though they are adopting incredibly strict and proactive standards and measures, um, Uganda, like for many countries and communities, COVID-19 is both laying bare and exacerbating many longstanding civic and social concerns, most notably human rights violations. For the past week, videos and reports are documenting government soldiers and law enforcement officials beating civilians with things like wires and sticks in various districts. So many reports are surfacing and many of these folks who are either hearing about or seeing visibly are women and young adults 
adults. Oh, and there was even a reported incident in the city of Mukono where police shot two construction workers who were riding a motorcycle. Um, it's just crazy, really hard to believe things. Um, and critics are saying that these lockdowns are actually being used to attack groups that the country has historically had alts with and that it is echoing a larger perhaps issue that the country um, must face. Um, for example, on March 29th, community residents and police raided a shelter for homeless LGBT youth and actually beat and arrested 23 people on in the shelter on grounds of neglect of a negligent act likely to spread infection of disease, I put in quotes, um, though the residents in the shelter were simply sleeping. And so um, even, even beyond that, victims have begun to take to local reporters and social media and kind of share their stories of how they've been stopped by police and soldiers and stating that they would avoid being arrested or avoid further punishment for violating COVID-19 restrictions if bribes or other forms of payments were um, given to them. And so um, an individual by the name of Oriam Nyoko, a Ugandan researcher at Human Rights Watch, in response to these events and this phenomenon, says that the basic human rights of people should be at the center of the government's response to this pandemic, especially those who are most vulnerable, like street vendors and homeless youth. The government should immediately instruct all enforcement officers not to use violence and publicly hold those who do commit abuses to account. And so that is one important thing that we would love our viewers to continue to keep in touch with as it relates to Uganda and COVID-19. And another thing I also want to quickly share um, related to how the COVID-19 pandemic is evolving in Uganda um, is really bring some attention to the long road ahead that Uganda has in terms of mitigating um, COVID-19 as what it really is, which is a public health crisis um, that could manifest within a very um, compromised health system. And so one of the things I want to bring to highlight is that community health workers are essentially the backbone of the Ugandan health system. They are often the first and last line of defense, funded and supported by local grassroots NGO advocacy supporting groups. And they often are treated treating and preventing diseases such as pneumonia, malaria, HIV, and now what is COVID-19. And these workers, many of them face an uphill battle as Uganda um, is one of the lowest health spenders in the world due to very difficult economic constraints on its GDP, um, with it only spending about 6% of its GDP on the health system um, compared to a country like the U.S. who spends um, about a third. And we see the crisis that the U.S. is in as it relates to healthcare, and so you can just imagine that disparity in percentage, and really, it's concerning, right? Um, and I think one of the ways that we see this really um, visually or visibly in the country of Uganda is that um, this low health spending has actually resulted only for 42 million. Um, citizens in Uganda, there are only 55 intensive care beds. Um, and 20 of those beds don't even have ventilator capacity. And so that is a really starkly scary reality for what this virus could do in terms of harming and killing people. And then we also have to take into account there is an a, extreme divide amongst rural and urban populations as far as who can access healthcare, who can access hospitals, because for folks who live in rural areas, which is um, majority of the country, accessing hospitals are challenging and they're expensive. They take, you know, weeks worth of pay to just get to many hospital centers that are located in major cities.
cities for folks who are um, living in rural areas and then healthcare is not free. So um, creating financial catastrophes for those who might receive health um, care and just making it really not an option. And so I really wanted to just lift this up because it is a really specific example of how COVID-19 is really changing the way of life and endangering a specific country. And uh, I think it's important to turn our heads to know that in these kinds of pandemics, the most vulnerable folks in society, a lot of times being children and youth um, and their families are extremely vulnerable um, and extremely at risk of, of suffering. And so many of you might be listening to this and saying like, this is great that we're learning about this and how do we, but how do we do more? How do we get involved? How do I actually um, help support um, through resources, you know, organizations, causes that are doing important work, um, maybe specifically in Uganda? Well, fortunately for you, <laughs> I have an answer or a solution to that. And so my co-hosts know that one of the reasons I'm so incredibly passionate about Uganda is because I have the privilege of being able to um, direct and begin an organization called Building Hope Project that works with young people, that works with students and families in Uganda. We service about 50 families. And one of the things that was really important to us was how do we help mitigate what is um, a food insecurity crisis that is manifesting now that schools are closed. Many students in Uganda, especially the students in our program, they rely on the standard two meals a day that the Ugandan school system provides as their meals for the uh, the school week. And so with schools being closed, students and their families are at real risk of hunger. They're at real risk of starvation. And so something that Building Hope Project is doing is we have began a rapid response fund where we are actually delivering and sourcing food to 54 family households to make sure that folks have what they need. We're raising funds for as much as three months because we're not sure how much the closure is going to last. We've been able to dispatch the first month of supplies, not just food, but school materials, necessary medical and hygiene products to ensure that folks are safe. And so this is an opportunity if any of you all want to support we need your support, prayers, love, but also your financial resources. Um, it's an African-run, Black-run, trusted, tested organization on the ground doing meaningful work. And if you want to support, you can go to buildinghopeproject.org slash COVID-19 or even uh, financially contribute on Venmo at buildinghope-project. So just wanted to give that little shameless plug because we learn about these things, but we got to put our, our work and, and our education into action and um, want to be just thankful for the Ubuntu podcast for giving me this platform to do this and to talk about this and yeah so overall lots of information but really necessary as we're trying to understand that crisis that is going to unfortunately possibly shape the continent for many years to come and so that is this episode's Africa in the News so I'm gonna kick it back off to Mr. Yoma thank y'all thank you David for that really informative segment. We definitely want to recognize the work that BHP is doing in Uganda, and we want to really emphasize the importance of our contributions and being able to support an organization that is really, you know, helping folks now with this rapid response fund. So we encourage you all to definitely check out the link in our episode description to support BHP. We definitely want to thank you for your Africa in the News segment, for recognizing that in Africa and that in many societies now, there's a challenge between how do we balance out human rights versus ensuring that citizens remain protected and safe. So we thank you for really elaborating those concerns and for highlighting 
the concerns of citizens um, and understanding that when it comes to a pandemic like this, that the rights of others also need to be respected as well in addition to their health and safety. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Hannah. Sure thing. We want to take the time now to actually transition to our main segment. So in the past few episodes, we've talked about Black history, adulting, sports. And in our past episode, we were lucky enough to actually have our first interview. So throughout these episodes, we've tried to make it a point to relate all these topics back to us as individuals and our own experiences growing up. This time, we're sticking to a discussion on the diaspora, but we'll do a deep dive into two communities in particular, the African-American and African communities. Whether it be through our own personal experiences, the media, or other institutions, we've seen many depictions on the relationships of African-Americans and Africans. A couple quotes here. This one from an essay written by the head of the Opportunity Agenda, which is a social justice communication lab. It's from Alan Jenkins. He discusses the, the Black immigrant divide. Specifically, he mentions how much of that conversation was framed in terms of competition and conflict. That framing was no accident. And that the mainstream media have fixated on potential points of Black and immigrant tension looking for a conflict storyline. And that storyline has been amply fed by conservative anti-immigrant groups intent on driving a wedge between the two communities. So in our trailer episode, we actually discussed the Black Panther effect. Dow actually brought it up and its impact on the diaspora. One Blavity article discusses the movie and how the movie actually gives a really transparent expose of the divide between our communities. As the article puts it, it explores a divide between T'Challa and Killmonger and refers to both characters actually symbolizing that divide between African and African American communities. One quote in particular from the article describes how one group is viewed by many Africans as the lost tribe, whilst the other maintains the luxury of a tight hold on the cultural traditions of old. This estrangement is gingerly reflected in the level of abandonment that Killmonger experiences at the hand of his own uncle, perhaps unintentionally mirroring the role the African elite played in the selling of slaves to Europeans. So there's a lot to unpack here between both communities, and we want to take the time now to really flesh it out. So I want to start off by asking you guys, growing up, when did you first come to the realization of this divide between the diaspora, between Africans and African-Americans, and were you mistreated anyway? What do you guys think? I will say, for me, uh, growing up, I... I guess when I, I guess when I first came to the realization of this divide, um, it wasn't explicit when I was growing up. I would say growing up, there was definitely, you know, okay, just so our listeners know in case you're new. So I'm a uh, native black American. Um, and so I grew up in a very like, um, black home <laughs> and, um, there were, a lot of soft and like latent biases and discriminations against African folks that um, I was conditioned to believe or that I heard a lot, whether it be through general family members or my schools or, or excuse me, even like church and things like that. Just the way that African uh, just the way it really specifically the continent of Africa was depicted and then African people as a result. And so there were like a lot of associations with um, different Africans as objects to compare um, suffering or as like a way to um, make me feel grateful. So like a lot of different, um, I don't want to say a lot of different black households, but definitely my household, um, <laughs> other households I knew, you know, would be like, you're so, you're so like, a, like you're so ungrateful. There's like kids in Africa who would love what you have. I get the, I get the, the, um, 
the point behind that, but I, it was definitely in a way um, normalizing a stereotype about what it meant to live in Africa, what it meant to be African, what it meant to be an African child. Within those contexts, it was often like I learned that Africa was uh, just associated with like extreme poverty and even many times like that very archaic, dark continent view. Like that is what I, like I don't remember a specific moment where someone said something and I was like, that is where this negative thought began. But I remember how I used to associate before I went to Africa for myself. I remember how I used to associate the, the, the visual imagination that would come to my mind when I thought about Africa and these very like negative, dark, you know, despairing ideas and thoughts and images. And so I would also say like I saw growing up Africa as a monolith um, as a result of all these wrong views. Um, but even though I saw myself directly connected to Africa, it was even like this idea that, you know, even it was like even a book. I don't know if my family read it or something crazy where it was like it was the divine plan of the Lord to like, you know, do the West Atlantic slave trade. And I do obviously believe, you know, everything happens for a reason, even the most horrible and traumatic experiences. But it was like so that some Africans could experience a decent life. Like that was the premise of this book. And it was just like a thought that carried over and people I knew that was like, you know, we got the good into the stick as in like because we're in America and we're in these developed countries and we're civilized almost. And so didn't realize that there was a divide, but I realized that um, um, the way African, many African-Americans thought, believed and behaved towards Africa and Africans were wrong and were also like produced by white supremacy. So that was my experience growing up and, you know, not happy about it, but happy I've done something with that. That was, that was a really, really, really great story. For me growing up, wow. Uh, my first time, I would say I experienced or saw the divide was when I was and uh, when I went to middle school. I had I had been in the States for two years now. When I went to middle school, it was the first time I saw the divide. I think we were studying, uh, it was during Black History Month. And, you know, the Black History Month, it tend to be when we study, you know, Black history, whether it's, you know, Dr. King, slavery, uh, the emancipation, uh, Jim Crow, all the way up to s civil rights. And so for me, the first time I experienced it was uh, when one of my own peers just literally came up to me and was just like, why did your people soul our people? off right and it just like it just kind of hit me you know it was just like wow uh because we, when you look at the history of slavery uh we, we we can't we cannot underplay or uh you know put under the carpet you know the role that some african elites played in slavery right or some african countries played in slavery and how they themselves benefited off of selling their own people off to europeans uh whether it was just fighting off their enemies and selling them off to gain weaponry wealth whatever it was the first time that hit me it was just like because some he was african-american he told me it was like why did your people sold us off uh and that in itself it was like you know i can sit here as an african and say well that wasn't my responsibility you know i feel like you you do you do feel a sense i think for me then i felt it wasn't guilt but it was a sense of there is some truth to that you know it's there is just fact and that's what it is and as hard as it was for me to hear it there was some truth to it and but it was also it was just like teaching myself it opened my eyes to teach myself about slavery uh, to teach myself about african kingdoms or african countries that played a role in slavery and how they were 
were responsible of selling off millions and millions of their people, uh, whom they deemed their enemies then. You know, there were warring parties. And so they deemed them that selling them off will solve their problems, right? Not not paying attention, not knowing, you know, the the, the hell that was on the gates of Africa with, after slavery, right? Uh, which what started it uh, you know, what you would say, you know, colonization for hundreds of years, because it started with slavery. After slavery, African countries became, you know, the properties of European countries. They didn't realize then. And so, and and so for me, it was, it, it, it just, I always just be growing up and being in middle school, I just always, I started to pay attention to the little things, whether it's my own community, you know, African and how they view African-Americans. I think Africans uh, view African-Americans in this one dimensional lens, you know, whether it's through media. It's, I grew up in East Africa. The first ever interaction I had with African-Americans was through music. It was hip hop. <laughs> it was jazz, R&B. And that was African-American culture right there. But unfortunately, the way the media over portray African-Americans is through this gangster rap, right? You know, it's a gangster rap. And uh, gangster rap has its own stereotypes. And that this was the stereotypes that even me in Africa... I could see and I knew myself the stereotypes that were being played as a kid, you know, uh, growing up in Africa. It was just like you would have adults say, you know, if you're sagging, you know, you're not dressing, you know, professionally. It was like, why are you being a niggas? You know, why are you being a nigga? You know, like, like you, why are you dressing as niggas? And th- the term of it too, I think for me, it's it's a it's a bit personal for me because the term niggas it was in, in Sudan growing up, uh, having my uncles and talking to my uncles who grew up in urban centers in the north in Sudan. Uh, the government were literally calling, you know, I think hustlers, uh, those who grew up in the projects of the urban cities of Khartoum or, or Omdurman, you know, niggas because they grew up in the projects. And unfortunately, these people were southerners or people from the Nuba Mountain or Darfur of darker complexion. So they were niggas. And so it has it had a racial undertone to it. But because they live in the projects, because they they're, they're displaced people living in the projects, they were called niggas. And so that was that was the racialized undertone to it. But I think my, the elders in my for my community, as I would say southern elders, they didn't use that in that derogatory term. So niggas men, you know, you know, the N word, but it was niggas men, gangsters, you know, gangbangers. That's what it meant to it. And so it's 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 it's, it's just them unintentionally knowing what the word mean. They don't know what the word mean. Even though we were colonized by the British and used such word on us when we when we we were under their control for a century, and so it's just it, it, it's just this whole history that goes into it that you know I didn't even realize until I started doing my own reflection myself and telling mom, you know, mom, you know, niggas don't mean gangsters, you know that, right? And she was like, "What do you mean?" And then was just like explaining it to her the meaning behind it, and she was like, "Oh, now she doesn't she doesn't use it anymore." But I had to educate her and explain that to her uh, mm. the meaning behind it. And so I think it's just it's also and when Africans come over here, Africans come with that business mindset. I'm here to succeed. I'm here to become a doctor. I'm here to a lawyer, you know, a teacher, you know, an engineer, whatever. That's what Africans. It's just like that's their mindset that most African parents want their children to become come here and achieve greatness no matter what obstacles are on their way. And unfortunately, some of those, unfortunately, a lot of African elders play into the stereotypes of, you know, of how the media portray African-Americans as taking advantage of the opportunity that's here. Yeah. Not knowing the the systematic, you know, systematic uh, oppression, discrimination, lynching, you know, denial that has been dealt to African-Americans for the last 500 years. Talk about it. And so this is a history most African elders don't know. They just see reality and say, well, my children can come here and work hard 
Why can't they? But it's just like your children experience racism when they go out into the world. They just don't know how to voice it because you taught, you told them not to say anything or do anything when it comes to the system. You can't change the system. You're just here to get your degree and get out. That's the mindset most African parents have. Their children are here to educate themselves and go back home, not necessarily live here. And so that's, that, that is my experience um, and when I first saw that divide, and that divide is still here today. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, those are some really profound points. Right? Have you really, yeah, really profound. I came to the realization when I was maybe as a kid, definitely. I remember growing up in the beginning, kind of thinking that America was a monolithic society in a way. Um, I was aware of my parents being immigrants and that there was an immigrant community. But um, before I really learned about U.S. history and like Black history, I didn't really understand that African-Americans had actual roots to the continent. I think from the lens that I was looking at as someone who was born here, but also had that immigrant background, it was kind of like Americans, anyone who's an American was just an American. I didn't really, at that at that age, didn't understand the complexities of it all. And I didn't really understand that there was like a real divide of anything up until I learned about Black history. And then I think that that divide became more emphasized to me through people in my community making a lot of references to culture. There was this prevailing sense that our cultures between you know the cultures of like African Americans and Africans that they were different. It was this sort of prevailing sense that like our culture is so different. Like we're we're really different people. There's just such a huge gap, and I saw that emphasized you know in my own community through a lot of people, and that was when I first started to realize the divide, and I saw that play out in interactions that. Um, Honestly, like adults would have from my community with like African Americans, that's when I saw that gap play out more. That's when I came to a greater realization of the divide being there. Oh, yeah, that's it's real. It's really yeah. real. Yeah, definitely. So, like, what's one misunderstanding that you guys had about other members of the diaspora? So, for David, what's a mis? What were misunderstandings that you had about Africans and the Dow? What were some misunderstandings that you had about African Americans? Uh, for me, I think the first thing, a misunderstanding that they, I had was when I was going through the immigration process, my family was going through the immigration process. In a way, the immigration process, in a way, is kind of like, you know, the microphone for the United States. And so what it, what, what it does, in a way, it plays up these stereotypes about African-Americans before you even come to the States. It literally was playing up these stereotypes about African-Americans. And it was just like, this is, this, is, this is what's acceptable in the United States. This is what's not acceptable to be in the United States. And what's not acceptable, it shows a gangbanger and it's a particularly a black man. But then when you look at yourself, you're like, I'm black. So what does that mean for me? You know what I'm saying? And so, so these stereotypes are already being played out by the, Im- the, the immigration office somewhere in Africa to African people. And I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only person that has gone through this. Our family, mm. our family are not the only people that have gone through this. Having right. these stereotypes of African-American played up to them before they come to the States. And so when I came to the States, I'll be honest with you, I literally was terrified of other people. You were black scared. Of other you black scared. people. I was, like, I was scared of other black people. Even yeah. I'm, I'm just as black as it gets, you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, uh, you know, and just like, 
until I made my first African, my, my first friend in school. He was African American, and we we like we bonded over sports. But I was I was terrified until then because I thought most African Americans were gangbangers. They had you know AK forty sevens, you know machine guns, you know, just shooting up shit because they wanted to. Because these were stereotypes that were played, you know, Africa, you know, it was like, if you show if you show a young kid, you know, a picture of a gangbanger and it happened to be a black person, what are you going to think, right? Or you show people that image. Now that image is in their mind psychologically. They're going to believe it whether they want to or not. That is crazy. Wait, so you're telling me that the immigration service, the immigration services actually showed black, like black folks in urban America and being like, don't do this, don't be that, this what, is stay away. Yeah, this is what's acceptable to be, you know, a responsible citizen. And this is what's not acceptable. So oh, a, non, wow. a non-acceptable responsible citizen is just like, as a gangbanger, right? A criminal, a thug. But the picture they put out is of what? Of a black person. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that like formal immigration services were conjuring up, you know. Yeah. And so some of these stereotypes play into, so when Africans, I think naturally when Africans come to this country, those stereotypes have already been amplified. So when they come, they're like, no, 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 I, I don't want nothing to do with black Americans because yeah. of these stereotypes that has already been fed into their head, even though they haven't had any interactions with African Americans. Yeah. There are so many layers to that. Like it's just yes, real. Sir. Yeah. It, it is. It's a real living proof that America's biggest export is media. Is, yeah, but also their racism because that's, that's true. But media is what ex- is what is what delivers the racism, right? And I imagine that, like, for folks immigrating all over the world, the U.S. is officializing this narrative that like Black Americans are to be feared and to be disregarded. Mm-hmm. It is that I did not know that that happened. That happens. That happens. Unfortunately, it happens. And I was a kid, and I I could I could still remember like it was. Today, like having immigration officials tell me and my family this and having the translator repeat that back to us in Dinka. And you're like, wait, what? That's crazy. It starts from there right as you enter. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, fe- I feared African-Americans like <laughs> until, yeah. I made my, until I made my first friend in school like six months later. The Color of Friendship. That was yeah. a good movie on Disney oh, Channel. Oh, The Color of Friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. promoting movies now, right? <laughs> Disney, don't sue us. <laughs> Or, or Disney, you can sponsor us. Please. We'll think about that. <laughs> Hanok, what about you? I think it's pretty similar. I grew up with this depiction that like African-Americans were people to be feared, unfortunately. And I think it came from very soft cues from what was fed to other individuals, um, particular to adults in our community, was that the African-American community was just a group to be feared and that you know things are negative, that that they don't like us. There was definitely this like kind of perpetuated kind of sense that they disliked us or, you know, there's even like this level of like, I, I would hear people say like African-Americans are jealous of us. And that definitely, you know, played a role in creating that misunderstanding in my own mind of, of this sense that like, yeah, like we're rivals or that we can't work together. That it's like not meant to be. And for me, I didn't really understand the role of history as well in shaping communities in particular, not really understanding how systemic racism plays a role in the mobility and ability for a group to 
succeed and have agency. So as Dow said, there was the notion that if our community could succeed or make it out of where we came from, like why can't African Americans do the same that notion without really understanding, you know, the systemic flaws and how everything was set to really hinder that or make that impossible. So yeah, it was definitely this idea that we were living in a post-racial society and that racism was a thing of the past and it happened and we learned about it and it was bad. But now things are different and we shouldn't focus on the past. And David, you touched upon this as well, that like even from like a theological standpoint, this whole kind of notion that everything was meant to be and using that as justification to not acknowledge what was done and injustice that was done and then not recognize that that had an impact on you know the present today. And so I didn't really understand what kind of loopholes were, were there. I could have honestly looked at myself and kind of realized like I was lucky enough to have access to mentors and people in my life that could help me figure things out. But even then, like I still struggled in a lot of ways. So you know, when I saw kids who were African-American who were in school and like struggling or acting out, for some reason I didn't really connect the dots and think, I would think like, you know, this person, this individual might have potential, but I didn't really think of the real inherent reasons why, systemic reasons why they might have all these challenges like in school or like they might be acting out. It didn't come, you know, didn't connect to me that it was because of all these systemic issues. It's more of just like, I could just work harder and do better sort of mentality. So that was a big misunderstanding that I had that I had to unlearn over time definitely wow that was a really thoughtful response from the both of you um man that is one thing and, and mm-hmm. i and i think like you just said just the unlearning part it's a long journey it's a long process you know i don't think no one is ever a hundred percent quote unquote woke it's, that's not true you're a human being you're always yeah. learning you're always oh, yeah. unlearning the toxic part of right that you grew up with you know or just, you know, the, the conditioning that you were conditioned to believe for the longest time, um, that you're trying now to uncondition that part. It's, it's a process and always mm-hmm. will be a process. Yeah. yeah definitely. Totally yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm just like at a loss of words a bit. Um, it's a great conversation. It definitely saddens me, you know, because it is unfortunate, like just the way that the propaganda that we've all believed, you know, whether it be you're from an African migrant community, like it's like no matter where we are, like, or who we are, we, we believe the same things about each other that white supremacy has taught us. Um, I think for me in answering that question, a misunderstanding I had. So I kind of talked about it a bit like I um, but going more into detail, um, just really not understanding that Africa was a continent with 54 countries growing up. I think it was 53. But <laughs> and just knowing that there was like so many different experiences and like thinking about what it was like for someone who was my age, a child growing up in Africa, that it wasn't just this singular one-dimensional experience, this um, faded experience. And I also think one of the things that I did not realize growing up, that I didn't understand until I was older, until I went to Africa, until I learned more and met more African people, um, that was um, a lot of Africans, they know and they they look and they follow, I guess, Black Americans. <laughs> and um, this is something we kind of talked about earlier and just I'll repeat it for the sake of the podcast, but it was mind blowing to understand that the that Black culture and essentially what young Black Americans have created have historically, but also currently like defined what is like African culture in many ways and like the culture of young people around the world. You think about the contributions of hip hop and fashion and, and, and television and it's like what ha- was created. And uh, for me, I'm from South LA. And so things that happened streets away from me have defined possibly forever what every Black person in the world will 
see as a part of who they are. Like that is, that is nuts. <laughs> that is nuts to me. And so I also think that growing up, I didn't realize that there was even those bridges that were already created. There was already those connection points w- through culture and other avenues. And that in a way that I felt like, oh, we're just so divided because there's just different languages and different contexts. And, you know, folks just would never like different African folks would just never understand my experience, different things like that. And it's like, no, there's already so many avenues in which we are close in which we are can actually build real community and solidarity. And so I will even say to that point on the flip side of that, um, something that I think is also just to add on to the first question, I didn't realize, like I said, that growing up, that there was a specific divide and kind of how Hannah really elaborated that there was real explicit negative feelings between different African communities and African-American communities about how we thought of each other, how it was like full of rivalry and competition and jealousy and um, the idea that like groups, some groups are behind because others are ahead and that, you know, we have to look out for ourselves. I didn't know that until honestly, I was an adult and until I started, until I went to college with the two of you, very smart you know, direct young men, I then began to see that there was a real problem because it was my first time that I was around African immigrants who are my age, you know, like it was different. And I felt like some of the things that were perpetuated was that different Africans were like almost better, um, like smarter, kind of Hennex said, like they're more competent than a lot of black Americans. Like I was, I, I heard folks saying that, or I, I would, I, I would hear of stories from other Africans about how that is the conversation that they have in their homes and they have in their communities about African Americans. And, um, was very shocked that by that because I was like, this sounds so like white supremacist and then realizing that that wasn't just the the babblings of a few misinformed uh, African migrants, but that was like a thread, that that was like a consistent narrative that was commonly believed and um, normalized in many African immigrant communities. The, the idea that like Black folks just didn't like them and that they were just going to be left to their own devices to kind of just, you know, wallow in their own destruction. And, and also what a lot of folks our age, our generation have tried to like have to fight their parents and their elders on those views and beliefs. And um, I will say connected to that, um, some of the conflicts I've experienced as it relates to these misunderstandings, it was, I will be honest and be upfront and, you know, for our listeners, hear my heart in this because I've changed slightly, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> I've changed a lot. Changed, a lot. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I was going to say it was always, I remember the first time I heard um, different, like, uh, like, Africans my age, whether it be like Nigerian, Senegalese, et cetera, et cetera, Ethiopian use the N-word. And at first it kind of threw me off. And it's not like, I don't think in my position to police Black people about how to use that word, but just knowing that that is a uniquely like American word. And now because of the way we've exported our culture, you know, it's commonly used everywhere. Kind of like Dow's story, like how that word was ghettoized to um, disparage folks in South Sudan, which is also mind-blowing going to me. Like I used to have problems because I would hear certain Africans um, using that word nigga and then and also doing other things to leverage black culture when it was in their benefit. Like, you know, speaking up against racism, trying to claim the brownie points that many black people get from being fetishized around our culture. And then, you know, different folks who might have been Senegalese or Nigerian or Cameroonian, then they're black, you know, the way they dress, the way they talk, the music they listen 
listen to. And it was like, but let a black person try to come in and listen to some Afro pop. It's like, uh, you know, you don't know our culture. You're not about this. You know, this is our thing. And I'm like, so we can all collectively share black American culture, but we can't collectively share, you know, what it might be Cameroonian culture, Nigerian culture. When black Americans have their, I mean, that's where we're from as well. These different countries, specifically in West Africa. So it was just like, I used to really be offended because it felt like a lot of different folks that I knew are folks that I would see. They would leverage black culture when it was like convenient to them, but then they'd be the same ones in different scenarios trying to so hard to develop a separation. Oh, I'm not black. I'm Ghanaian. Oh, I'm not black. I'm Nigerian. Oh, I'm not black. I'm Senegalese. And I'm like, okay, well, you was black at the party, at the function, you know, you was black on Instagram. And so where is like this, this hopping in and out and like almost being the gatekeepers of who in the diaspora gets to participate in certain experiences, cultures, ideas, like that used to be really hard for me and offensive to me as I was a young person trying to really embrace and love and be and like go deeper into my African heritage and be a Pan-Africanist to see that kind of behavior and to feel like, honestly, I couldn't do anything about it. I'm like, yeah, they're right. I don't even know what country I'm really from, you know, in Africa. And like being like, I could, I didn't have equal footing. And so that was hard for me to see that take place and to see it also just be another another tool yielded from white supremacy um, that starts so much inward fighting and division. And so, yeah, that is that is a misunderstanding that I've, I have unfortunately been a victim of and conflict that has played out for me. Wow. Wow. That was wow. That was that was really deep. Uh, thank you, David. And, and I just want one thing I wanted to add a point. You, I think one thing both communities are trying to fight for is a seat at the table when there is not even a chair at the table for them. Exactly. Fighting over the crumbs for the acceptance of white supremacy. I think where I come from, too, Sudan has its own history of colorism and uh, racism against darker skin tone people who happen to be nilotic. And so nilotic people are very proud of their darkness, you know, that jet blue black skin. Because of their own experience in their own country. So when I came to this country, my mom was like, you're black. You come from land of the blacks. And so I never had any issue of, for say, some people saying, oh, running away from blackness. When people see me, they see blackness. They don't see the name of my country, you know, up in front on my chest. They don't. They see, oh, that's a black person. And most people always mistake me for two things. Either I'm Sudanese or I am Senegalese. Perhaps the two darkest people that you'll find on the continent of Africa. Just tall, dark, black people. And so I never I never had any issue with my blackness whatsoever. Even when I came to this country as a young kid, I knew I was black. Because my mom, my, pa- my parents made sure that I was proud of my blackness. Because it was blackness that was used against them to discriminate them in the land they've been in for centuries, millenniums. Uh, but unfortunately, that's also doing a colonization that we don't talk about and how it put, you know, a pyramid even within African countries where you see, you know, African elite happen to come from certain ethnic ethnicities, have to come from certain backgrounds with certain skin tone. It's all even in Africa is played out. Colorism, you know, purely based on the skin tone of who is worthy and who's not worthy. And that is, is also how, you know, when you come to America, I think it also plays into some certain people, they don't Certain, even I can say certain Sudanese people didn't realize they were black until they left Sudan from a particular region. And that's just how it is. It's just like because blackness is just 
blackness is a thing that is just due to white supremacy is a thing that has brought a sense of a shame to certain black people for them to be ashamed of their blackness, even within the continent of Africa. And so they, they, they want to do everything in their power to disassociate from blackness, even though the world will never let them get away from it. Right. Because the world view them and see them as black people. Preach on it. Preach on it. Yes. Yeah. Great points. Great points. I just want to add that you were talking about a DAO, David, you mentioned as well, just the whole idea that we're like fighting for crumbs in a way. I would say that growing up, what I experienced from kids like me who were, were born here or who either came here, immigrated here when they were young and had parents that were immigrants, thinking in particular, to be honest, about Africans and like Ethiopian immigrants, uh, kids who were born here in particular, where there was a lot of hesitation, especially when we were young, to really acknowledge our background and our cultural identity. And a lot of that was because we experienced moments where there was, in a way, it was kind of looked at negatively, right? So the whole aspect of being African. And so I saw a lot of times where kids who were either born here, or it actually occurred a lot with kids who immigrated here. And I think a lot of people can kind of see where I'm going with this. When they would come here, they wanted to assimilate. So when you assimilate, you just assimilate with like what you think is the cool, coolest thing to do or like the coolest way to act. And a lot of times, as you mentioned, David, that's like, black culture. So saw a lot of immigrants. See, like if you have immigrants who would come here and then they attempt to assimilate and their understanding of assimilation would be to kind of not acknowledge where they came from. They'd forget the language or they'd kind of attempt to kind of change their, their rhetoric around like how they talk, their vernacular in a way to reflect what they thought was like cool or what they thought was like, like African-American kind of like culture in a way. And then I've I saw, like, even with myself, like, I remember feeling, like, a lot of hesitation growing up to kind of talk about being Ethiopian um, and kind of wanting to keep myself assimilated or to, like, assimilate in what I thought was the correct way. And so that a lot of times meant, like, not mentioning, like, being African or not talking about that background. And then even in our own community, like, you see it now, like, the word... Yeah, as an example, like I've, I've been guilty of this too. Like we use the word fob a lot of times, like fresh off the boat. That word gets used all the time. There are different contexts to it. And I think there are times when it can be used in a way that's um, meant to kind of entertain as a community, entertain us. But I saw a lot of times growing up where that would be used internally within our own community. So as an example, like with Ethiopians, Ethiopians, like people like me who are born here and have Ethiopian parents, oftentimes you know culturally and just like in terms of like our own understanding of things there are a lot of differences between a kid who might come here when they're older who's an immigrant um so let's say someone who's maybe 15 16 comes here and maybe they have an accent or they in a lot of ways are more connected to you know their ethiopian background a lot of times they get made fun of by people like me like ethiopians that were born here they get called fob they'd get disassociated from even internally like we would definitely divide each other between like who's more American, who's more assimilated. And then based off of that, that impacts your own like social level or your understanding of like who's cooler, um, who do you want to spend more time with? You don't want to hang out with the fob because the fob is like the weird one or the fob is the one that like, that isn't cool, like not worth getting to know, things of that sort. And there are tons of stories from people that I know, individuals who came to this country when they were maybe in middle school and they experienced the full brunt of that, you know, whether it be by people in our community or by maybe African-Americans or by other, you know, groups, just kids in general who are like making fun of the kid who like first came to this country. And so reflecting back on that now, like 
it's really awful, but it's like another dynamic of how internally we're, you know, playing into this, into these stereotypes of what it means to be an American, what it means to assimilate. And then the stereotypes that we have about African culture, the whole African booty scratcher mentality that plays into our interactions as well. So good. That was, that was such an important uh, thing to lift. And I feel very much enlightened. So I appreciate you sharing that, Hannah. Um, and Dow, this is <laughs> this is my favorite conversation so far. This is a good one. This is a really good one. Yeah. And so I want to ask the next question because I'm curious and we've talked about it. So a couple of things I'm taking away from this conversation so far. One, kids are mean. Not through their own doing. Through the Exactly. Exactly. I think if you want to study or if you want to see how systems really work in their most purest forms, you can look at kids because their conditioning is going to be the most strongest in many ways. But that was my little light humor. But um, and then I feel like I've got I've gained a lot from listening to you all and reflecting on my own personal, interpersonal experiences and how these how this divide has manifested, um, how we've seen it, heard it, lived it um, at the at the individual level. But I'm curious to hear from you guys. And I know that it's been kind of talked and said in different ways already, especially with Dow um, and with you, Hanok, with your last response, but in a more explicit way, what role do you see different institutions like the media, like different celebrities, our education system and the like? What role do you think they play in, 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 in this portrayal of our communities as eternally separated and divided? I, they definitely play a lot of role. I think the first role that they play is, is, uh, is the way they amplify up stereotypes, right? You know, the hungry child in Africa that just playing on a television screen for like a whole day. That, you you know, a child sees it in America. That's just going to be your perception of Africa growing up because it's just that's being played 24-7. Now, it's, it not, was mine. it's not saying that there aren't, there isn't poverty in Africa. There is. But it's also there is also the other side of Africa, you know, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, the sto- the a single story. There's no such thing to a single story, you know. Uh, and when it comes to Africa, there are many stories, you know, of course, one of despair, one of poverty. But there's also one of a greatness, uh, ones of people, you know, persevering and coming out of poverty, uplifting their communities, uh, doing great work in human rights, uh, women standing up for their rights, uh, whether to vote or be in government. Uh, civil service. And so there's so much that is happening on the continent, but I feel like the way the media amplify up Africa, it just always portrayed the negative aspect of it. And so, and vice versa, you know, the media always shows the negative aspect of African-American culture in Africa. It doesn't show African-Americans that are doing great things, you know, whether in medicine, in media, in music. No, it doesn't show that. It shows the opposite. And so, if we're only being shown the, ne- the negative perceptions of one another, what are we going to think of one another? We're just going to think what we're showing. And so, unfortunately, that's what that's the role the media plays. Yeah, I think I totally agree with you, Dal. I think institutions play play the, their portrayal of our communities in a way that's kind of most beneficial to them in the moment. Growing up, like you said, my first experience of Africa, honestly, because I didn't I didn't go to Africa until I was 16, 15, 16. My experience in the beginning was looking at children starving on television. And it sucks because the the experiences that I had seen that were honestly on like faith-based networks as well. Um, A lot of ministers who were, who had, you know, organizations that were, it was broadcast. So the media played a role for me in helping children in different countries across the continent. But unfortunately, my portrayal of it was that 
all of Africa is like this. And, you know, the, the level of dignity wasn't always there in the way that it was broadcast. So the media played a role for me in giving me a sense of fear, playing to stereotypes that were internally in my head as well. And that gave me a, a bit of shame, to be honest, in my own identity as an African or in my own understanding that like I had an African background, like I felt that shame as a kid growing up a lot of times. And I think a lot of kids did as well because, you know, their understanding of the continent and where they're from, where their family's from, you know, is that they're from poverty, they're from a place of conflict. And uh, it's, it's hard then as a parent, how do you, you know, engage your kids when they're being given that rhetoric already? So it's definitely been a, that was definitely a big challenge for me. And as an example, something that I thought was interesting, I talked about it with you guys already was, there was a sketch actually that I saw from Steve Harvey, as an example, it was titled Africa Six Scarier Than the Projects. And it talked about how uh, he took a trip to the continent. And it was interesting because he made no real like locational reference. He just talked about how he was in Africa on a safari. And that's literally it. Like he didn't talk about the country. He didn't talk about where he was, uh, like what he was doing there. Um, but there was a whole like seven minute sketch about it all. And he talked about how like Africa kind of scared him and it was scary to him then growing up in the projects. And, you know, I, like I'm not trying to bash Steve Harvey for sure. Like he's a great dude. But like that sketch, for instance, was an example of just the stereotypes being played out and then for like an african-american to do a sketch about that and then to have a full audience where people are laughing and i know there are people that are in that audience that are laughing that are like african-americans and africans too um to see all that was interesting and it you know it gave me an understanding of how the media like is in a lot of ways playing an active role in like digging into that divide so i felt that was yeah it, it surprised me as well and it was a video from a while ago and I, I'm pretty sure things have changed for him for now. But just seeing that was just really interesting. That is great. Wow. Y'all's responses are blowing me away. Thank you for just being honest and vulnerable there, Hanok. And I'm excited because for our, our, our listeners, our next episode is actually going to be focused all on development, Africa, the, the charity, the ache industry. So I won't even go too much into because I have so many thoughts, uh, especially parallels around what it was like for me as an African-American to sit up and watch Feed the Children, Save the Children, and then go to Africa and then now be a part of an organization desperately fighting to not be that. <laughs> when it's sometimes, to be quite honest, just so much easier um, in terms of success and how horribly the system is created around aid. But that's another topic for another day. But in that, my response is emphatically, yes, the media is, as it, as it is a cultural arm for most other forms of isms and white supremacy, definitely a big, big player in my life personally, as it relates to um, this misinformation and just like all these stereotypes and all these notions of division. And it's like, I can't even give like a specific example. I think the I think the 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 infomercials are, are a great example, but it's in everything. It's like this the sitcom where the standard guest star is this the goofy African man, you know, who speaks with um an unrecognizable generic accent and wears frumpy clothes and is like the comedic slapstick joke. It's like all the conversations about African women on TV yelling and you know upsetting their husbands and you know always. Being pregnant. It's, I mean, it's in everything and it's so disturbing from the side of, um, how African-Americans perceive Africans and then kind of how Dow really went to detail earlier. There's the whole flip side of what the media does. And so I won't take up too much time on my response, but I just, I'm in agreement and yeah, our systems are responsible for this. And we do have to talk about our systems in order to really talk about how we change culture because culture is a system. Yeah. 
Thank you both for those points. We've talked a lot about the divides now. So I want to wrap this up by asking, you know, we're aware of the divides now. What's one thing that makes you both hopeful that the divide is being addressed and we can truly come together? And what is one thing that people listening can do to actively bridge the divide? What do you guys think? Uh, I think one thing that we are doing uh, that I didn't see growing up, we are seeing uh, more, uh, I would say, uh, the more t- like uh, more events where our communities are coming together. You know, it's not just, oh, this is an African-American event. This is an African event, you know, whether it's through music, uh, you know, such as like the Afro, like the Afro Nation, you know, or like, you know, like those summer jams are just like where African-Americans are collaborating with African artists. You know what I'm saying? Whether, you know, Kid, Beyonce, you know, Akon uh, collaborating with Burna Boy. You know, it's just like you're having more and more of us collaborating and appreciating each other's you know cultures each other's cultures is our culture you know what i'm saying it's just it's just kind of like you know living out ubuntu i am because we are in reality and then on top of that more young people what we're doing i think we're having these conversations more and more off uh, than before i think we were also calling each other out whether in our communities or whether those that we say okay we we're also educating each other you know if, you know, if an African-American might say something, a misperception, I say, yo, my brother, let me, let me show you, let me show you this, what's up. And then that's how I changed that way. And if I have my own stereotypes and prejudices, he's going to educate me and sit me down. You know, it's not a full out war, but to say, my brother, you are misunderstanding here. Let me educate you. And I think that's what's happening more and more of. We are educating each other, but we are also realizing that if not us, then who the hell will, will appreciate us? Who will love us if we can't love ourselves as black people, whether here in the diaspora and also back home in Africa. Yeah, I love that. And I completely agree. I think it was talked about in our first episode. It's a phrase that um, was coined and I think it's really relevant. It's like the Black Panther effect. And um, one of the reasons why I... I'm personally so invested in art and um, film and all those things is because it's such an important uh, tool for cultural production. And it's like when you change the way a culture thinks, um, you can literally, I think everything else can follow. And I feel like what makes me hopeful to echo what Dow said is that there are intentional, like thoughtful collaborations between African-American communities and different African communities. And I hope that there is more thoughtful engagement outside of just art making, but that there's real conversation that, you know, precedes that and um, at every different level, every different kind of art. And um, it feels like that is happening. And I feel like more than any, I feel like more than a long now, more than it has been in a long time, like we're seeing our interconnected struggle. I think social media has also allowed us to be able to see our interconnected struggle and connect. And as Many different um, countries in Africa continue to um, grow and develop and free themselves <laughs> from all of the colonial pressures and um, shackles. I think there's also like an ability for us to fully connect in a way that just has not been possible before. And so I'm hopeful about that. And I will say one way that people can continue to make this alive and do the work so that we can see this realize in our lifetime use the tools like I kind of just already said it like use the tools that you have you have Twitter like 
type in a new tag word of a country that you have in Africa or like a group in Africa that you are not familiar with. See what people are saying. You know, listen to music by different types of Black artists. Do research. Um, look for articles. Like there's just so much free knowledge that helps us learn about wh- who we are and how we're connected and how we can support each other. And um, also I would say befriend and build relationships with people who are in the diaspora um, that you can. So many of us are fortunate to be around all different types of Black people and like let's really challenge ourselves to diversify even within our own continent and within our own diaspora who we associate with and who we care about and invest in relationally. So that's what I would say. Mm, Well said. Yeah, well said. Well said to the both of you. I think what's given me hope is just the friendships that I've made growing up um, with you guys and then, you know, just growing up, the friends that I had that gave me hope that, you know, we were able to share commonalities and embrace the differences um, and that we can continue, you know, I think in terms of actively bridging the divide, I think we can just continue to have these conversations and really challenge our own assumptions and kind of be upfront about it and address them with individuals that you trust. So if there's an assumption that you may have and you kind of want to talk about it, being able to address it with someone that you trust and just seeking wisdom and who you engage with and who you share things with is really important. So definitely have hope. And those are just my two cents on that as well. For sure. For sure. Like you said, you know, educating ourselves and you know, un- you know, re reconditioning ourselves in the right way and the right form. Yeah, love right it, on. love it, y'all. Yeah, I love this. I love it. Uh, thank you all. I am so excited for our listeners to hear this conversation. I think this is really embodies like what we are all about as the Ubuntu Podcast. Um, and just to really drive it home with our with our our tagline because Africa is bigger than our boundaries, and um, this is the kind of work that is done to make sure that we see that and make that real. So thank you all for what has been a great, open, transformative, honest conversation. We hope our listeners can also take away the things that we've mentioned and be inspired to start those conversations, reach across the aisle, no pun intended, um, with all the stuff that's going on, and um, really begin to build those fruitful revelations about our beautiful, wonderful diaspora. And um, thank you again to Hinnock. Thank you to Dow. Remember, listeners, we always put excellent awesome links to substantiate everything we've said in our episode description so if you want to learn more if you want to stay invested check those out everything is free that we post i don't think we post anything with paywalls um and then again please stay tuned our next episode will be released per our regular schedule so at the end of april the 24th um we have an awesome episode all about development and uh yes stay tuned and without further ado this is david and I'm signing off. Peace out, y'all. Hey, peace, y'all. It's it been, it been, you know, it's been a pleasure sharing this conversation with y'all. You know, it definitely, it was fruitful. And I think, I think that it takes this type of level of friendship, y'all, for all our listeners to have these deep, meaningful conversations. They are not easy. They're not. But to grow, you definitely have to. You got to go through the uncomfortable part. 
totally likewise yeah this is how i just want to thank you guys for this conversation i definitely had a great time learned a lot from all of you and i hope our listeners were able to gain something new as well hey everyone thank you so much for tuning in you can follow us on twitter and instagram at the ubuntu pod and on facebook at the ubuntu podcast make sure to like follow and subscribe you can listen to us on both apple and spotify as well you can also follow me directly on Instagram at Henny Yilma, H-E-N-I-Y-I-L-M-A. Hey, y'all. It's Dow. Don't forget to follow me on IG. So it's Dow underscore Doldol. Hey, everyone. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at David J-A-Y Curtis with two S's. Thank you. Thank you.